Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Commitment Matters. Happy spring. Well, the calendar says it is, even if the weather hasn't quite figured out what it is we're all doing just yet. But I think you're going to really enjoy today's guest. This is part one of a great conversation with Lisa Walden. Now, Lisa was our keynote speaker at our user group conference recently, and her insights really got everyone who heard her thinking. So we asked, and she graciously agreed to join us here at the pod so that you could listen in too. Lisa is a communication and culture expert and is the co-founder of Good Company Consulting. At GCC, their mission is to help people create workplaces that don't suck, which is probably all you need to hear about her to know that you'll want to learn more from her. Her current book, Managing Millennials for Dummies, is linked in today's show notes. And as you'll hear, she's working on a book currently about how the pandemic will forever change the way we work. And as you'll also hear, she's promised to write the book on working effectively with Gen Z. Lisa, we all need you to write that book. Lisa is such a great guest because sometimes we forget that understanding people helps time at work go more smoothly. And understanding yourself, well, that just makes life go more smoothly. So today we've called in the sociologist, and we're talking generations, introverts and extroverts, perfectionism, and I know there are a lot of you out there who need to hear about that, the platinum rule, avoiding the hamster wheel feeling in life, and and gosh, we just cover a lot. So let's get to it. Please enjoy my conversation with the wise, the observant, the infectiously energetic Lisa Walden. Lisa, welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so happy to have you here. Having seen you speak from the stage, uh, I my first question for you has to be about your energy, which is infectious. What makes you feel energized? What a great question. It's so funny. I've never really thought of myself as a particularly energetic person, but Whenever I get feedback on my speaking, that seems to be one of the first things that mm-hmm. I hear is, wow, how mm-hmm. do you have so much energy? It's unmissable, yeah. I would point that energy is coming from just my passion for the content. I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but it's honestly so true. I'm, I feel beyond privileged to be able to be given a platform to speak on things that I am so deeply passionate about. And it's easy. It, it comes so naturally. It's very authentic to who I am, too. So it's not like a s- faked persona. It's just how I feel about the content that I'm presenting. And I've always been one of those people that when I care deeply about something or when I think something is great, I have to tell the whole world. I'm the opposite of a gatekeeper. I don't even know what the term for that is, but whatever <laughs> the opposite of a gatekeeper is, that's me. So just given the opportunity to share this message gets me so stoked and so hyped. And that's where the energy comes from. Evangelist might be the right word. The opposite of <laughs> a gatekeeper might be an yeah. evangelist. <laughs> I think so. I love it. <laughs> well, obviously you love understanding how people tick. And I think that you are of the belief that that helps life and especially work. And I know that one of your specialties is helping people develop workplaces that don't suck. How did you get to this calling in life? I feel that my route to this job has been a pretty winding road. I actually 
am an introvert myself, so mm. I never thought that I would be someone who would be on the stage. In fact, in my previous company where I worked at, I'll never forget one of my coworkers, Phil, would always tell me, he was a speaker and he was like, Lisa, you need to get on the stage. I'm telling you, you would be great. It's like, absolutely not. I am a behind the scenes kind of person. <laughs> keep me behind the computer, keep me behind the report. That's where I thrive. And it's just been an interesting road because I found that people will also ask me, hey, how as an introvert do you do this job that is so people facing and in front of people? And it's tied to where I get my energy too in that I feel like I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation when I'm on stage. It's not interacting with 500 people at any given time. It's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with 500 people. That's what it feels like to me. And in terms of the content specifically, I feel like I always have had this belief that work is such a huge portion of our lives. The average person spends about 90,000 hours at work in their lifetime. So many people that I interacted with from graduating college when people said, that's the best time of your life, enjoy it. After that, it's downhill. First of all, what a terrible message. Second of all, everyone was always saying, work, it sucks. And it's just something you have to do. You get done, you get through it, and you go home. You count down for the weekend, enjoy the weekend, and then get back on, into the workplace. And I just thought, what a horrible way to think about yeah. work and how we're spending our time. And so I always had this pushback to that. I always had this in my mind that, I'm going to find a job that's not like that. I'm going to see if I can do it differently. My journey to understand what that meant was interesting because at first I thought that meant finding a job that I loved so much that was so deeply tied to all of my dearest held passions, and that would be the solution to the problem. I quickly got into burnout space because I devoted so much of myself to that job, and it was too closely tied to my personal passions ended up trying a few different things and finally have landed at GCC where my mission, my goal is to really have this workplace for myself that I love, but I don't think of as my child. It is not my baby. It is not my family member. It is my job. So I create that distance between my work and my identity so that if I do a bad speech, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It is not tied to who I am. It is a piece of who I am. It's a part of the puzzle. And I've learned so much along the way. I've learned so much nuance. I've talked to so many people who are in so many different kinds of roles, so many different industries, healthcare, manufacturing, tech, all over the board, truly, blue collar, white collar. And in speaking to all of these people and doing my research, the thing that I came back to and still come back to today is we all want that. We all want to have 90,000 hours filled with ease and joy, and yes, hard work and accomplishment, but something that is really complementary to our life, not something that's taking away or draining us. And it all comes back to we're human beings. We're human beings. We have one life. We have one shot to do this right. And so how do we make sure that we're investing into making those 90,000 hours as great as they can be for everyone as well as for ourselves? Thinking about it sort of in a community mindset approach and also knowing, you know, these are businesses. We need to make money. We're trying mm -hmm. to run a successful business. That's important too. But can we have a both and situation where we understand, yes, this is a business and we have to make it run and make it successful? And can a secondary, and might I even say a tied objective be, can we create spaces where people love to show up and it's a boon to their lives and not a negative, not something that takes away?
I am fascinated by your outlook on this. And I love how comparatively early you came to it because you do hear either when you walk out of high school or college or whatever it is and you are about to commence, you either hear, well, to your point, strap in, you're getting on the hamster wheel. This is the treadmill and it's this way until hopefully you get to retire before you die. Or you hear the other message, which is, oh, do something that you absolutely love and that you're absolutely passionate about, and then you'll never work a day in your life. And you said, hey, you want to be more towards that side of the equation, but you can get way too wrapped around the axle if it is your passion. I'd love for you to say more on that because I don't think enough people have heard that message. I don't know that I use this for the presentation that I did for you all, but um, I have some slides that has that quote, Mary, of if you do something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. False. That is false. That is a message that we were sold that is simply not true. You can love your job more than anything. Some days it's still going to be work. There is no perfect, easy, fluid Nothing you can do is going to be like that. No job is like that. You will work. You will have hard days. You will have days that you'll struggle. You will have days where you show up and you're like, I don't want to be here. Why am I doing this? What have I done? You're going to work hard no matter what. The problem when you have a job that you're super passionate about, that you love so much, is that people end up devoting their time to it because they want to, because they care about it, because they care about the mission, because they're so invested in doing what they're doing. I've spoken to so many people who do that, and then I ask beyond their work, or I ask them how they're doing. I sit with them and I say, how are you doing as an individual, as a person unrelated to your work? And they get really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And they can't I've had people break that. Yeah. They can't. I've had people literally break down into tears in interviews because there is no answer beyond that. And these people are also often operating in like a bottom of the barrel burnout space where they don't feel they have time for me time is not a real thing. If I talk about self-care, self-nourishment, they laugh in my face. It's like they're always putting off caring for themselves until next week, until next month, until things slow down. Spoiler, things never will slow down unless you actively step in and act to slow them down. I learned that lesson fairly young. I did. I learned it in my early 20s when I was working so hard and so long that my eyes, when I went to work the next day, they would just be red. They would be totally bloodshot because I was staring at a screen for hours and hours on end. One of my colleagues started jokingly calling me red eye girl. After a few years of that, I was like, what am I doing? Like, yeah. literally, what am I doing? I love this job, but I am so much more than a job. I have hobbies and I have friends and I have family and I've I've just been giving, giving, giving to this one thing. And I really need to rethink that mindset. I need to rethink what I'm doing. That lesson that I learned early on has just been reinforced in conversations with my clients and conversations with people who say, unfortunately, it's sad to hear, but it's good because I think they often have these watershed moments, but they do say to me, I don't know what it was all for. All right. I find myself here now looking back and it's all been a blur because I've given so much to my job and I've yeah. done amazing things and it's been wonderful, but I forgot about me along the mm -hmm. way and I would do it differently if I could well, go back. Well, and it can so, serve a part of you going in something you're deeply passionate about like that, blowing, going year after year, decade after decade. When you get in that, you 
realize that it feeds a lot of your passions and it gives you like a lot of the things you were talking about, accomplishments, a sense of identity, a moving the needles, something to get up in the morning for, and you do care and you are very passionate about it. And that's all great. But I think you can get so eating at just that trough that you don't realize the parts of you that they're malnourished. You're overdoing here and that's a mode, you're in that mode and it doesn't take long for you to not even remember, oh, I used to have hobbies. Oh, I used to be closer with friends and family, that sort of stuff. Do you hear a lot of people talk about that aspect of it? Wow. Yes. This is just another testament to diversity is important in all different capacities of our lives. So there's two pieces I want to talk about in response and reaction to that. First of all, my background is in generational theory generational sociology that very much plays into the way I think about a lot of the work that I'm doing. And I am a millennial. I graduated in 2009. So a very auspicious year to be entering the workplace. Yeah. <laughs> you sure, know, the Great fine. Recession. Yeah. Everything was awesome. I had so many job offers. Just kidding. No, yeah. it was a terrible year to graduate. But in that year, I also saw what was happening with my parents and the parents of my friends. And personally, a very personal story, my dad worked for the same company for 30 plus years. He had started there as an accountant, moved his way up, classic baby boomer story of super competitive, super devoted to his job, got there before the boss arrived, left after the boss left, really put in his hours, traveled around the world, moved us around the world. He gave his all to this to this job and he really cared about it. It was a really big part of his identity. And then in 2009, we were living actually at the time we had been moved. They had moved him to Moscow, Russia. So we were living there. Things were not going well at the company. And he got an email letting him know that he had been replaced by somebody else, someone who was half as expensive as he was at that point to this day, has never spoken to someone in person about being let go after 30 years in a in role. another country. <laughs> in another, living literally in <laughs> Russia at that time. Yeah. If you take the Russia part of this story out, by the way, I've heard it twice in the last two weeks, over 30 years, wow. one organization summarily dismissed with not much of a word. I want to throw that in because I want to talk to you later in the conversation about some of these old paradigms, some of these older covenants that aren't true anymore, but please continue. I just wanted to yes. put that marker in there. Wow. Yeah, no. Wow. So this to me, I was in my late teens at this point and I witnessed this happening. He lost a huge part of his identity and because he had put so much into that work, into that as a piece of who he was, when it was taken away from him like that, what did he have left? He had us, he had his family, but it was so, so difficult to see and to witness. That broke me a little bit. I saw it break him and it also really shifted my mindset about how I thought about work. Often people will say about millennials and Gen Z too, they have no loyalty to jobs. They just hop around here and there and there. And why aren't they giving their all to an organization? Well, I saw what happened to my dad. He did give his all. He did work who knows how many hours. Like I said, we moved around the world. He took his family everywhere without even an ounce of consideration for who he was and what he had done and what he had given this organization. He was dropped like that. Now, mm -hmm. why would I look at that experience and the experience that many other people's parents had and go into an organization and say, 
I'm going to give you my all. I'm going to devote my life to you. I'm going to stick around here because you care about me as an employee. I learned that lesson as a teenager and that ingrained yeah. itself in, in my brain. It was demonstrated. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure very much. And I noticed working with earlier career folks, almost to a person, they have a side hustle. They have a contracting gig, an Uber gig, something so that they don't have 100% dependency on their day job. And for those of us kind of Gen X and a little above that, for a while, we weren't quite sure what to make of that because it was like, well, are you not committed here? Or are you? And it's always like, no, this is this other thing I do. It was kind of a puzzle. We weren't quite sure what we were looking at for a while. And then it finally took a millennial person sitting it down, sitting me down and explaining it almost exactly like that, which is, hey, one thing that is true that my boomer parents taught me was always have a backup plan. And they're like, I'm just actively doing my backup plan right now. It seems so healthy. But again, when you're operating under the old paradigm as X and above, and by above, I mean older, did we looked at it and didn't understand wh why. We didn't understand why. And we didn't ask. In fairness, we didn't ask. We could have asked. Well, that's why, I mean, I say this all the time. A lot of the work that I do is just generating understanding. When we understand that why, when we see where it comes from, just looking at it face value, yeah, it looks like, wow, look at these unloyal new batch of employees that are doing the side hustle and jumping around and they don't care about their work. When you understand that why, there's a lot more empathy and compassion for what you're seeing. So unpacking that why is huge to having compassion for the what. And just the second piece I wanted to say around the work ethic thing too is that, or the tying your work to your work identity and, and giving it your all. The thing that seems so obvious, but it maybe doesn't land in people's brains or it doesn't you stay there is when you take time away from your work, it makes you better at your work. So when people are so devoted to the work they do, giving it that they're all working 10 hour days for six days a week, always available, always checking their phone. I mean, I understand some roles require that require you to be available and present, but in the ways that you can pull back, I see people not pulling back. They're just giving and giving and giving. And it's the classic thing of when you're in the shower, that's when your best ideas come to you. It's like, I thought about this all day long and I could not come up with a solution. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in the shower, I'm cleaning my dishes and boom, like the thought pops there into my brain. Yep. Yeah. Time away is critical to do your job well. As much as you care about your job, any individual, that time, that break, that vacation, that staycation, that unplugging for the weekend and thinking about something else, that is literally caring about your job. That is making you best and better and more able to solve problems, to be creative, to be present at your work. So that pulling away absolutely needs to happen in order to do the, your best work. But it can be like a truth that's hard to reconcile, especially because the American workforce specifically is really built that more is better. And in this case, more is definitely not better. Well, I love all these myths that we're dispelling today. It's fantastic. And <laughs> yeah. I know, I know we have several people listening to this that needed to hear that message. And I'm going to preach on it a little bit too, because yes, and again, I think especially those of us later in our career, learned it very differently. And we pride ourselves when we haven't used all of our vacation days. I mean, I can remember thinking it was a sign of weakness if I took a sick day and actually stayed home 
and worked from home, but it was just almost this mind virus. So I love to hear you say that it was kind of BS the whole time. Another one that I've heard you bust, another myth that I've heard you bust is that perfectionism is desirable. Let's talk a little bit about Mm. perfection, how it gets ingrained in people and some of the positives it can help them accomplish, and then some of the negatives that they might not even realize. And the reason I'm going to ask you to really expand on this is because after your keynote, I was with the attendees for the next three days, and I kept hearing the phrase, I'm a recovering perfectionist. They had no idea that it was a bad thing to be. You blew their minds apart, and I know they're still thinking about it. But for those that weren't there, I'd love for them to have the benefit of hearing your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel particularly well-suited to speak on this because I described myself as a recovering perfectionist. I was of the ilk, of the kind of person who fully believed that perfectionism was a goal. The golden characteristic that you would want, yeah, like the choirs are singing down upon you, you're a perfectionist, (laughs) you are amazing, wow. I remember when I was interviewing for jobs in my 20s, and they would ask the classic interview question of, what is a flaw? What is one of your flaws that you would describe? I'd be like- Did you humble brag about being a perfectionist? Well, I absolutely did. I was like, well, (laughs) I I guess I would say I'm a Um, bit of a perfectionist, (laughs) knowing in the back of my mind that I was like, this is an awesome quality. So this is a sneaky way of answering this question. Well, turns out I was actually just describing a flaw because- Perfectionism is exhausting, is actually a huge barrier to a lot of wonderful things. And I think it's been sold to us as something desirable when truly it is not. I mentioned this too in my speech, but we created, we being me and my business partner, Hannah Ubel, we recently finished writing a book, The Future of Work is Human, which takes a look at how the pandemic years have really shifted our perception on work and what work looks like going forward. What are some strategies that we can implement to really create human first workplaces? And one of the chapters we devoted entirely to the topic of perfectionism because we saw it as so important and so relevant in building human first workplaces. Perfectionism at a workplace includes everything from expectations that people can work 10, 12-hour days multiple times a week, expectations that failure is not a thing inherent. It's almost like we're treating people or expecting people to behave more like robots than actual human beings. And Mm -hmm. human beings are inherently imperfect. It's a part of the human experience. So when we try to achieve perfection, which is unachievable. You cannot reach perfection. And no single one of us will ever reach perfection. That's exhausting. That's a draining effort. That's not getting us anywhere. And it's preventing us from achieving so many other better things. I mentioned that some of the things that perfectionism gets in the way of is creativity, is innovation, is actually trying to do something that we've been meaning to do for a long time, but we hold back because we start procrastinating. That's one thing I didn't mention is perfectionism has an evil twin, which is Mm -hmm. procrastination, you know, and and paralysis. You don't start doing anything because you're afraid you're not going to get it right. Then the imposter syndrome. When I heard that the first time, it unlocked so much for me because I was always like, why do I have this tendency to procrastinate? What is the deal? I'm capable. I'm knowledgeable. I do a good job at things. Why won't I just do it? And it is that. It was the link to perfectionism that it makes you not get started. And it also, I think, keeps you from being present, which is, I think, a big factor of the creativity and all of that drag, because you're always thinking about 
how you're going to tackle this next thing or what you did three hours ago or three days ago. I believe it was in a conversation with you, Mary, where we spoke about perseverating, overthinking, ruminating about using the wrong sign-off to an email. I wrote warm regards instead of warmly or, oh my gosh, should I have used that emoji? Is that even professional? Did I have one too many exclamation points? Did I not have enough exclamation points? And I mean, have you, I saw, I think a meme today on the internet of people who will write emails and then go back and reread them after they've been sent three or four times, sometimes to, to enjoy their myself. craft work. <laughs> yeah. I have to literally tell myself because I'll get an urge to go back and read an email sent back in time. I'm not obsessive. I'm not talking two or three years ago, <laughs> but a couple weeks ago. And I have to tell myself, yeah. Mary Schuster, do not do it. Yes. What yes. is that? And sometimes it's because you wrote an amazing email and you're like, wow, that was a work of art. And sometimes it's because you're like, wait, 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 wait. How could my message have been mi mm -hmm. misconstrued? Da, 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 da. It just, we spend so much unnecessary energy overthinking things that don't need to be overthought. Yeah, you know, it feels it's like the equivalent of ruminating over and over after you leave the house, I leave the iron on. It doesn't matter. You're gone. But it feels related to that somehow. I can't quite put them together. It's effort that doesn't need to be yes. expended. And yes. perfectionists will often, first of all, they're often trying to get to the right answer. A perfectionist in a meeting in a room, they might not have a question. They might not chime up with an idea because they're like, wait, 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 wait. Is this the right idea? Is this the right question? Is this a dumb question? Am I going to look like I don't know if I ask this? Am I going to look like I'm missing something if I ask this? So there's a lack of vulnerability, right? There's a lack of a willingness to be vulnerable in a room and in a space. That attempt to get to the right answer prevents a lot of ideation and creation and wrong answers that are what get us to do our best work. So if we're always trying to be correct or right, we're holding ourselves back and we're keeping ourselves small. So really, rather than aiming for perfection, which is an unrealistic goal, we should be aiming for progress. Can we progress? Can we move forward in some sort of way? Even if that means taking a couple steps back, because that itself can be part of progress. So I'm not trying necessarily to get the 100% right answer. I'm trying to move forward, whatever that direction is. It might be here, it might be north, it might be south, whatever, but I'm moving in a specific direction towards my goal. I think that's so, so important. And once I was able to ditch that perfectionist mindset and mentality of, expecting perfection. First of all, it made me so much more compassionate and empathetic with my coworkers because I held them up to the same standard. I told myself I didn't. Subconsciously, I was like, you missed that comma in that email. <laughs> I never thought this maliciously, but it was always like a weird kind of thing in the back of my mind. It was noted. And also, it was noted. And it didn't need to be noted. It wasn't that serious. It wasn't that big a deal. And also, I was able to be a lot more vulnerable and show up as myself. The, one of the things about perfectionism is we try to show other people that we got it. Everything's under control. I'm good. And we hide the parts of ourselves that might need help. We don't ask for help. We are like, I got it. This is mine. I don't need you to do this. I can take care of it. I'll lead the charge on this group project, whatever. We're again, close. It's a, it's a scarcity mindset. Truly perfectionism comes from scarcity. So we're not being vulnerable. We're not showing our weaknesses. And it's only by admitting these things, by being vulnerable, by asking for help and asking for people to shed light on these areas that we might be weak. That's actually how we get stronger. If we keep hiding those things under a bushel, they never see light. 
we're just going to stay small. Again, I really think perfectionism is a way of self-sabotage and keeping ourselves small. Oh, that is amazing. I do think you're 100% right. I do think it manifests from a scarcity mindset. And when you were talking about the, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. This is pretty much everybody listening to this podcast right now. It just feeds on itself because as you're carrying, you know, I'm imagining somebody, their arms are overflowing and going, I got it, I got it. And they're dropping stuff all over the floor and they get asked, do you need some help? Nope, I got it, I got it. And so the more they go on like that, the more gets piled on, the more falls off on the floor and that triggers the what? Imposter syndrome and frustration because you now you can't possibly do it all perfectly. No, you cannot. You will not. And you'll hit a wall, right? Because there's only so much you can carry. No matter how much you try to pile on, you're going to hit a wall. And I've seen people hit that wall. This is another scenario where I've been delivering a presentation on burnout to a small group of people and have had multiple people literally break down during the presentation because they've just had a, a moment, a moment of realization of what... I can't keep doing this. I literally can't keep doing this. It's that surviving versus living thing that I think I ended the presentation with of, are we just surviving? Are we using every muscle in our body to carry all of these things that we've collected along the way? Or are we living? Are we living our lives? So being able to delegate, to ask for help. And asking for help is one of those funny things where asking for help is actually what bonds us as human beings. I think and of course, I say this with caveats. It's not like you're not doing your job and you're just asking everyone else to do things for you. That's not what I mean. But asking for help, I learned this lesson from Hannah, actually, because I always try to keep my work to myself, never ask for her time because I want it to be protective of her time. I would just try and do things myself. It's like, no, I actually don't necessarily need you to, to jump in on this. Well, we eventually had a conversation where she said, Lisa, I like helping you. Helping you makes me feel useful in this partnership. It hurts me when you don't ask for help because then I think that you don't care about my opinion or you don't need me. When you ask for help, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel great. Research has shown that those when we ask others for help, when we get them to help us, we're actually giving them the opportunity to have that connection with us. It can be a gift of sorts. So I think that mindset of not asking for help is protecting others is flawed, is inherently flawed, and is another thing that we need to, debunking myths here that we need to debunk. Asking for help can be a really powerful way of building community personally and professionally. Well, this is the perfect time for this conversation because, as you know, our industry has been absolutely buffeted the past handful of years with crazy work conditions, crazy volume, crazy stress, and people are just now kind of coming down, catching their breath, reassessing. And so I think this conversation, helping them understand how they work and some ways they might be shortchanging themselves is pretty critical, but also helping them understand some things to bring in and apply to help make their workplace and work relationships go more smoothly is awesome. So I love that we're dispelling some of these myths. One of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier, and you really perked up my ear on that one, was I think there are some misnomers about introverts versus extroverts. So for example, you said, hey, guess what? I speak as a keynote speaker for a living, and I'm an introvert. And I understand that myself. I do a lot of public speaking, and I am also an introvert. And I think people think they know what those words really mean. I think they think you and I hate people and extroverts <laughs> love people. And it's not that at all. Yep. So let's talk about that 
all the way around the horn if we can. This is one of those kind of interesting things where these labels, this, the, these buckets can be useful, but they're not the end-all be-all. So I talk about generations. I talk about millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, Gen Z. We have to be really careful that we're not using those labels as 100% put people in a box, defining them by that. People are complex. They're made up of a lot of different pieces, things, sociological backgrounds. So when we say this person's an introvert, it's a lens that helps us understand you, Mary, that helps people understand me, but it is not a defining factor, a defining word. So whenever we talk about things like this, I think that's important to keep in mind. And then, yeah, you know, the basic definition of introversion versus extroversion is introverts are people who, when they're around other people, their battery, their energetic battery is drained. And that is not necessarily because they don't like being around people. They can love being around people. I personally need to be around people. It's really important. I need to see my friends. I need to see my family. I love speaking to audiences, but it does drain my battery. It cannot be denied. I will reach a point of the day where I have been around people too much and I'm like, the switch is off. I need to go. I need to go. I need to find my exit wherever I can. It is time for Lisa to go into a room, turn off the lights and just be with myself. Like just like watch, I don't know, um, something on Netflix or read a book or something, but I need to be not with people. I just need to be by myself. Now, extroverts are kind of the opposite of that, where for them, I had a boss who is an extrovert, and she just always wanted to have meetings, always wanted to be around people, loved going into work, did not love holidays because that meant she wasn't coming in and being around people. We were like, that's weird. Extroverts are really energized by people, energized by rooms. When they're alone too much, when they're not spending time around other people, that's when their battery becomes drained. So they need to find people. They need to be around them. And introverts and extroverts can love people just as much as one from the other. It is just that energetically they derive different things out of being in a room with people or being with people versus not. And that really is the key. It's the energy draw or expenditure and yes. sort of the, the net yield there is what's so important. And you probably had this happen to you. And I've told people I'm an introvert. They'll flat out say you're lying or you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, yep. you can't necessarily see it from a brief interaction. Oh, absolutely not. Watching your coworkers at, like you said, at the end of the day or at the end of even a meeting, at the end of a week, everybody's tired. But what they do about that is going to be two different things. Exactly. It's really funny because you don't necessarily know right off the bat, which is why I really advocate for that platinum rule mindset and the really doing the work to be curious and to learn about the people that you're working with, to learn about what their preferences are, how they show up. Are they introverts? Are they extroverts? Whatever kind of conversations you can have. Of course, the people are willing to have these conversations with you, but to understand who people are beyond what at first it may appear. Because at first it may appear, Mary, you're an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. Clearly not the case. And just doing that extra beat, that extra due diligence to really understand your peers, your leaders, the people that you are serving, your clients, your customers, all of that. It's a little bit of effort in the upfront that pays big dividends later on, even in the moment. So I'm really a huge advocate of how can you remain curious and really actively seek to understand, truly understand. Again, we go back to the why behind the what, understand who people are and why. Well, let's touch on that platinum rule for a little bit, because for people that didn't have the benefit to hear you speak from the stage recently, and you did mention that we used to be taught about 
going to work and practicing the golden rule, right? And we all know what that one was. And actually, it's funny that you use that joke because in our world, we have a little bit different of a golden rule, which is he who holds mm. the golds makes the rules. And that's about letters <laughs> and transactions. So that was a cute that you brought that up. But I think a lot of people have not heard of the concept of the platinum rule. And it's an important one. So tell them what it is. The golden rule, as someone outside the industry who learned it back in kindergarten, was treat others the way that you wish to be treated, which has really come from a really great place. You would not want to be treated poorly, so don't treat other people poorly. And that concept in general, the intent is really sound. In practice, it doesn't function the way that it was intended. Intent versus impact kind of a thing, because the world is not made up of people who are exactly like you. This world is not made up of a billion different Lisas. There's a lot of different kinds of people in this world who've had a vastly different life experience, who have a vastly different perspective and ways that they prefer to communicate and how they show up at work or how they engage in converse, all of these different things. So many different things are impacted by who you are, where you came from, a lot of different sociological lenses, your generation, what country you were born, you know, all of these different pieces. So the golden rule simply does not work because it's not relevant to everyone how you want to be treated. So the platinum rule sort of reverses that, puts it on its head and says, can we treat other people the way that they wish to be treated? And I think that's so, so key. And I mentioned this caveat when I was presenting, but that does not mean to be inauthentic to who you are because authenticity is also key. We have to be ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be exhausted by the end of the day. People are going to read that so quickly. It's not a sound strategy whatsoever. You have to be authentic to who you are. And it's a both and. And we can also take into consideration other people's preferences and how they wish to to be interacted with. This works on so many different planes. And perhaps really, really importantly, when we look at, at managers and how leaders and managers and supervisors can really individualize their approach to leading people, to giving feedback. For example, for me, I am the kind of person who wilts when I'm given feedback in front of others, even if it's positive. And I'm it's actually more specifically if it's positive. I don't mind the negative feedback, but positive praise in front of other people, for some reason, I get so embarrassed. My face flushes red. I don't know what to do with it. I'm grateful for it, but I don't like receiving it in a public forum. Like that to me is not a way of showing appreciation. It's a way of making me wilt. It's not a positive experience for me. Eventually in my past work experience, I had a, a manager who was all about the public like displays of affection, but in this case, public displays of appreciation to her employees. And I just was like, do I need to start doing a bad job so that I don't get these anymore? Because I don't like this. I don't enjoy this. It is not doing what she thinks it's doing. So eventually I told her, right, because communication is that's how we get our messages heard. That's how we let people understand who we are. So I told her, I was like, I am so grateful and thankful that you're the kind of leader who is spotting these things and appreciating them. I love that. But I don't love receiving that message in these meetings, in these group meetings around other people. I would much prefer if you could send me an email or tell me on our one-on-ones. I, I just, it's a little uncomfortable for me. I don't really understand why, but I know that it's a thing. So if you could do them in those settings instead of the public settings, I would love that. And she did. And she switched it. And it was amazing. And I it, like I was actually able to take in the feedback versus just being so caught up in my feelings of embarrassment. That's just one example of how platinum ruling and really individualizing your approach for different people can lead to much more meaningful engagements and interactions with people that you're working with. Well, and I love 
not only that example, I love how you tell it because it's so constructive for people to learn from. You didn't say, don't do that. Uh, you said, I love that you notice my work because you could have, if you would have just addressed the public part, she would have thought, could have thought, oh, okay, Lisa doesn't want me to say anything about noticing her work. You said, no, no, I love that. I need that. I love that you're the kind of person that does that. Can we just change the environment in which you do it? And it's a little thing. And then she was able to align her actions with her intentions, which are, let's reward Lisa for going above and beyond and getting noticed. Let's do it in a way that it is rewarding. Yep. Yep. And she took that feedback exactly as one should. You know, she didn't get defensive. She was like, wow, like that's how I like to get my feedback. I love getting feedback in public. I thought I was doing a great thing. She was golden ruling the way that she was leading me. I had no idea that that's how you felt. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Absolutely. And she made the switch. So we had a very psychologically safe environment, which is another thing I talked about where I felt very open and able to give feedback up, to give feedback everywhere and in a way where it wouldn't be received defensively or, you know, I would be shut down, uh, which is great because those little moments of friction that don't mean they're small little things, but they build up. I was able to really nip them in the bud and give feedback where needed. And it was really healthy, nourishing kind of environment to be in. Okay, everybody, sorry, but we had to end part one here because you're out there busy making it all work. So we'll save part two for you and drop it in your feed in two weeks. So we'll be back with you then. Until next time, observe the folks you work with in a new way. What really impacted the person they are, the way they work, the preferences they have? Have you asked them? Maybe try the platinum rule on for size. Take it out for a spin and see whether you find it effective or not. And we'll keep finding the conversations with the people who can help you do what you do, because what you do really matters. <laughs>